When you are looking for ways to stand out amongst the competition, custom-branded merchandise is a great investment for your brand. If you need custom t-shirts, hoodies, polos, hats, or other items, then you need to call The Merch Man. The Merch Man specializes in custom items for businesses, bands, artists, brands, and more. The Merch Man offers screen print, direct-to-garment, and embroidery for small orders or big bulk orders. We also offer online store setup and a complete fulfillment center with the best profit margin in the industry for qualifying applicants. Call The Merch Man today at 304-362-2131. That's 304-362-2131. Custom merch fast and at its finest. You never know when you just might need an attorney. Picking the right representation is crucial for the outcome of your case. When you go to battle in the courtroom, you want the very best in your corner. You need the advocate to the stars. The professional's professional. The undisputed world heavyweight champion of justice, Stephen P. New. If you have been mistreated and abused by a major corporation, if you've been abused by a representative like a doctor at the Veterans Administration Hospital, if you or a member of your family has been the victim of elder abuse in a nursing home, if you have been poisoned by Roundup or by asbestos in your talcum powder, if your entire city's water supply been poisoned by chemicals left underground, or if you've got any other kind of gripe or grievance that you feel needs Redress in the legal system. Call Stephen P. New, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. He's representing people from professional wrestlers to just the little people out there like you and me that need some champion of justice to defend their rights in a court of law, especially with the American justice system being as fucked up as it is. You need somebody that knows this shit inside and out. And Stephen P. New, if it's one thing he knows inside and out, it is shit. I think you mean a courtroom. A courtroom full of shit. That's what you'll get. Every time you're in a courtroom, you've got a courtroom full of shit. You need a shit shoveler to shovel all the shit out of the way and get you the shit you deserve. And Stephen P. New is the best shit shoveler in the world. He will dig you out of whatever hole of shit you're buried in and he will get you the shit that you deserve so that you can go and tell everybody else that they're the shits and you'll be the shit. When you seek legal counsel, choose Stephen New and his team. They'll work together to achieve the best results for your case and support you every step of the way. Our clients, why we do what we do, the law office of Stephen. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's a fluke. Well, I know it's no fluke. Woman knows it's not a fluke. You might think it is because all you see is a beer drinking, cigarette smoking, pool hustling. Scumbag <laughs> with the world's heavyweight champion, Shane Douglas, the college educated, history teaching professor of the mat wrestler. I beat him. This is it tonight, man. Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Franchisees, welcome to your favorite podcast and mine, Franchise with Shane Douglas. And we are doing it a little bit different this week. It's called Franchise on the Road. And we've got the Sandman with us today. That's right. Shane Douglas goes out on the road and he spends a lot of time with a lot of people. And this particular time, he was spending some time 
with the Sandman. Now, you get to be a fly on the wall for this conversation and listen to two of ECW's most hardcore legends talk it out over whatever it is they want to speak about. And this is going to be a really good one. I enjoyed this interview when I heard it, and I think you will too. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to join the franchisee group on Facebook. We are out there. We are everywhere. And we want you to be connected. Now, without further ado, let's get right into it as we go to this interview already in progress. Shane Douglas talking to the Sandman right here on Franchised. Hey, we're here with another episode of On the Road with the Franchise, and look who I got, Mr. Extreme himself. I'm so excited about this one because like I was telling a mutual friend, we won't use names, we'll say a mutual friend of ours, and was telling him, anytime you put any of the ECW family in the same room, this stuff just sort of writes itself because we have so much shared experience. Uh, but, I mean, let's just get right into it. Starting at the beginning, like, what brought you to professional wrestling? Me and uh, me, my older brother, and my stepdad watching wrestling when I'm literally four or five years old watching. Because all we got was um, WWWF then, you know what I mean? Yeah. And dude, and I, I just I had to be in front of the TV every Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock, and then every Saturday afternoon at now, 5 o'clock. I'm curious, because I watched the WWF on Studio Wrestling in Pittsburgh. Was it a local show? Yeah, because they would. Yeah, because they were always doing. They would. Um, they would tape down in Philadelphia, Forty Second and Market, and then they might do like Allentown or like Hamburg. Yeah. They would do sure. some taping there. So that was most of all the stuff I saw when I when I was younger. Until of course, then cable came along and yeah. stuff like that. But but like my first my first wrestling show, my older brother took me to. Um, um, 15, 16 years old, and we're down in not so good of a part of section of Philly where they used to take, but I just remember the main event was like uh, Dusty Rhodes, Mil Mascaras, and somebody else against the Samoans and Don Morocco, dude, and it was the greatest thing ever to be. Because there was no guardrails up there and stuff. The guys just walked right by you like it was like it was nothing, you know what I mean? And, and then I was just totally hooked, and then I, I was going every month to the spectrum. Yeah, and Philadelphia, obviously, like Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, the old WWF territory was like Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Cleveland, you know, up in yeah. Rochester, that north, like that sort of north up into Buffalo, uh, 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 Boston. Uh, so, you know, they would loop through there. Those guys would jump in the car and they would loop right around. And that's why Dominic and Bruno had settled in Pittsburgh. And I'm sure there are probably a lot of wrestlers that live close to you. Dude, you, I would have thought that too, but there's like, there, I don't know. Back then, well, first of all, nobody even would have known back then because we don't all have computers in our pocket. Right, shit like that, right. you know what I'm saying? But, um, but no, nah, I mean, like, like, like there was special delivery Jones from Philadelphia. They said he was from Philadelphia, but I don't know if, right. you know, if he lived there. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I didn't, but dude, I wish, I wish they all lived around me. Maybe they would have got into it. Well, the only way I, I got, even knew that Dominic was, right, well, and we all knew Bruno would be there. Right, but I, you know, they said from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I had no idea Dominic did because they announced him from Italy. And uh, when we did the backyard, I, it must be the world's first backyard wrestling show. It was 1978. My friends and I built that ring. And after a couple of weeks of fooling around, got bored with it and thought, what could we do? And they, remember when we were kids, they used to ask kids to throw a backyard furniture, raise a few bucks, and send it into uh, muscular dystrophy. So we decided to do a backyard wrestling show. 
and went to the local chapter in Beaver County, uh, north of Pittsburgh. And a woman there, her name was Angeline Paparella, uh, an incredibly courageous woman. I love to talk about her when I get the chance because she was, uh, I'm guessing late 50s, early 60s, uh, had been a nurse, contracted adult onset muscular dystrophy. She was completely immobile, but could move a few fingers. And I think she was so enamored by the fact that these punk kids that, you know, 14, 13 years old wanted to raise money. So a few days after we met with her, uh, I guess to get her blessing, she called me up and she said, hey, there's a, uh, there's a wrestler that lives locally. He's an Italian guy. I said, Bruno San Martino. She said, no, no, it's not Bruno. And then she fumbled with Dominic's name. She said, Dominini, Dominini. I said, Dominic Danucci? And he was the world tag champion. She said, yeah, he lives uh, nearby here. And she said, if he's in town that day, he may stop by. Well, that's how we ended up meeting Dominic and got my foot in the door. So I'm curious, like after being a, a fan of those <coughs> shows in, in Philadelphia and you know, being hooked by it, like we all got what what took you from being a fan to taking that step in <coughs> here we go so it's my first fucking i had no idea what an independent show was dude right. i'm reading the bill after magazines and stuff like that but i'm seeing all these wrestlers and they could have been freaking houdini himself to me because i had no access to see them live they were just in some of these pictures and a bunch of writing you know what i'm saying so we go to see uh, i think it might have been I would just say it could have been Andre in steel in the steel cage against um against Big John Studd. It might have been that night. Whatever it was, it was like it was '89, and um and we come outside and we find these, this little leaflet on, on the uh, on, on our uh, windshield wiper, sure. and we're both like, oh my god, what is this? We gotta go to this. Golden ticket. Bruno San Martino, and it was a small venue down at a college. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we get, dude, we got, dude, that still gives me fucking goosebumps. I get out of the fucking car, and wouldn't you believe it, he's standing right next to me, gets out of his car too, Bruno San Martino. No kidding. Wow. Dude, I was hoping, and I was hooked right then. Oh, dude, I was so, I was even hooked before then, but once I saw him, like that close, you know what I mean, and like a real person, I don't know, maybe something was clicking in my head, but then I go in and I see the first match, and I'm like, Dude, you got to remember back in those days that the WWF was a land of the giants. Right, like, sure. These dudes were big. Yeah. But these indie guys, I'm like, I'm going to my buddy Ruben. I'm like, yeah, Ruben, I can do this. He goes, I know you can. I gave Joel, Joel Goodhart like $3,500 like two days later. I think I want to see the day was March 6th, actually. My birthday, my Kelly, Kelly, my daughter's birthday. And I gave him $3,500. and How then at this point? 2027, 20, 28. Wow, yeah, it was old. Yeah, dude, we didn't know there was no Indies, there was no nothing. I didn't. Yeah. I got so lucky with that avenue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and obviously I was older. And so then, literally, I trained four nights a week, and my Ty was coming down. My uh, my oldest son Ty, he was he was like super and for like less than a year old. Yeah. Uh, Peaches was coming down with me. Uh, Kelly was coming down with us, and we all did it as like a family thing. It was like me, Goodhart, J.T. Smith, uh, Larry Winters, right? And by and lo, lo and behold, by June 9th, I'm having my first match at Bonner High School, a place right around the corner from where I grew up at. Wow! And where was this? Where was the school? Uh, the school was in Northeast Philadelphia. Okay. 
So, yeah, when you got to the school, was there, like, first of all, who did the training at the school? Was it Joe uh, No, Joe, no, it was Larry, but most of my training was done by a guy named Larry Winters and, um, and uh, Rock and Rebel, some Johnny Hotbody in there, uh, JT Smith, who I worked with a lot, had a lot of my first matches with, even guys back to, like, like CN Reds knew a little bit more than I did then. The Jimmy Gennettis knew a little bit more than I did. You know what I mean? So right. there's a little bit, a couple guys, a mix of a lot of shit. But mo mostly all your, all your, all your stand-up switches and all that shit was fed to me by Larry. But yeah. after that, it was, it was away from him and more, more like me and the rebel. And what year was this? Ninety. Okay. So it's eighty-nine, ninety right here. Yeah. So then you know. There was the, the early 90s and we were dabbling what around the independent scene in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, yeah, New Jersey. Joel, yeah, well, I mean, we weren't doing many shows. Maybe he had like six a year, but yeah. he would have some big ones. Like he brought in, he would bring in your Abdul the Butchers that nobody ever saw around here right. and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Sure. He was supposed to bring in Ric Flair and then, then, then that's when all the shit hit the fan and then whatever happened happened and then Todd did, which ended up taking over. Which was probably the best thing for all of us. Now that early part of Eastern Championship Wrestling, I'm, I'm really sketchy on because I didn't get there till 93. So give me some history on, on that early Eastern, like what year did it start? Uh, was it Joe Goodhart that started it? Yeah, Joe, Court, Joe Goodhart used to have a wrestling show on WIP, 610 WIP, he would have a wrestling show on Saturday mornings that we would tune into. And then he started having some shows like, you know, the stuff that we were doing last night. We were literally in a, um, in a parking lot. Right. I'm pretty damn sure the very first show I was ever at for Joel, for Joel uh, Goodhart was in a parking lot. And then we'd have another one in a parking lot here. And then we'd, like, he'd find like a small building here. But we weren't like branching out yet. But he'd, like three shows a year we would do in a big building like the Philadelphia Civic Center or something like that. Now, I'm curious, with uh, while you were training, because I know like with Dom at Dominic's school, you know, you had Mark Curtis, of course, who passed away, uh, Brian Hildebrand, uh, 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 Mick Foley, obviously, Cody Michaels. I mean, Dominic had a ton of people there, 20, 30 students at one time. I remember vividly like Mick and Cody and Brian and all of us talking, and we knew we were okay for like local stuff, but like watching the guys on TV, I remember watching like Bret Hart was like what I was watching around that time. And thinking like, we're okay for this, but those guys are great. And you, I, in my head, I could never envision myself being in a ring with those guys. Like, was it the same way for Oh, guys? dude, what are you kidding me? And I could do it. I got so lucky, literally. Like, like my mind's blown. I got to, in my, in my first 10 matches, I worked with uh, Superfly Stuka, Ivan Kowalf, Nikolai Volkov, and a couple other guys that, are, that were famous that I didn't remember. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, a couple months later, I'm in Memphis working main events with Jerry Lawler. Nope. In the business for six months. Okay, now see, I didn't even know you had gone to Memphis. <laughs> really? Was it like for six months? No, no. It was a, a three-month three run because my wife was back home with the kids and yeah. she couldn't handle it. You know what I mean? So I got in there. Lawler seen me work. The first week they put me over. This, all right, so everybody, if you ever see a picture of me in a surfboard, and I, I'm not in a surfboard, I'm such an idiot, carrying a surfboard with the wetsuit, the, hey, dude, surf's up. That all became, because Jerry Lawler talked to Joel, Joel Goodhart and said, listen, I, 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 need, I want you to send me two guys, but I want them to have gimmicks, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
So I don't know, my head right went right to the surfing thing and JT ended up becoming this black black cat dude. So that's where the whole surfing board uh, idea came on, came was from. I needed something to bring down to Memphis with me. Yeah. So I get down there. First week, I don't, I don't, I don't even remember. Oh, dude. I uh, did this fucking story. And you know how small the Memphis TV fucking street? Yeah, I yeah, do. Yeah. See this? This is bigger than that whole studio, right? So I go in there, I'm like, I, I'm, dude, I'm, I'm full of pissing bigger right here. You know what I'm saying? I'm, feel, I'm feeling it a little bit. I mean, I'm scared shitless, but. So it's me, Emery, and. Uh, uh, me, Emery, and one of uh, the. Uh, Doug. Uh, I I forget his name, or, or Bart Sawyer it might have been. Way more Pipers, he was always around with Piper. Yeah. Against Lawler and two other guys that I don't remember. We went to the ring with nothing. I was shitting myself. I'm like, dude, how are we going to the ring and I don't know the finish? I don't know the start. But that's just how it was with like Eric and Lawler. They just go out there, it's TV, they, TV, they just work it out. Sure. So I'm like, all right. So I'm facing this way, I go up there, I said, I want to start the match. He goes, okay, I turn around, fucking Lawler standing across the ring. I'm like, boy. Mm. And I did it, and when I did, I went back to, what the hell do you know? Went up, kicked him, told the reverse seat, give me a big back chop, took a powder. Fucking Eric goes, get the fuck back in the ring now, kid. I got back in the ring, don't forget what happened right after that. But uh, yeah, that was my first experience with Lawler and why I had the wetsuit and all that stuff. Wow. So I, 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 that was going to be one of my questions. Like, where did the surfing gimmick come from? Because in the early ECW, I remember you having that for 30 seconds. Yeah, and and then then I, I come back from, I come, and then I come back from, uh, from USWA, and now Paul Heyman's got the book. It's kind of when I left, it was Eddie Gilbert and yeah. shit, whatever. Oh, so it was in that time when Eddie was there, you went to, to Memphis? Yeah. Wow. So I, this is why I love doing these interviews because you hear all this stuff and like you know to me like it's like a ball of information with ECW right and then like you, like with Curtis same thing like where I had no idea how he came into the business. Uh, so so fucking Paul Heyman the first night he looks at me we're in Eastern College, which isn't too far from the city of Philadelphia. There's a swimming pool right across the other side. Yeah, yeah. dude, uh, Paul Paul he had he goes he goes. No, he hated the gimmick right away. He goes, surfboard gone. We figured out a way. We sliced it some. He broke it over my head during the match. And then a little bit after, other than one day, I right, here we go. Before this, I'll get you this one. So then how I end up from this, from my swimming, from my, uh, whatever the swimsuit was, and wearing the black boots, I came to a show and, um, in Five Points, uh, it, was, uh, it was over on the other side of Philly. And, um, and I forgot my gear. And I went to the ring in clothes and I said, I went up the pole and I go, remember, I said, dude, I forgot my gear. He's like, I, he's like, I don't care. And he walked away. I'm like, dude, I'm never getting dressed again for a shot. I'm like, I can show up at the freaking building, dude. That's how I got it. Well, I was, I was there at that time. I remember the first time we flew in, uh, Funk and I were picked up at the airport by Kathy. She had the hotel van. Um, what was that, a comfort room we stayed at there, I think? The railroad? No, no, the one uh, up by the airport. Uh, 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 over by the, uh, was it By the stadium? No, by the Shoney's. Uh, 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 yeah, a couple of them. So we, uh, we get picked up and Ter Terry was sitting behind me and he tapped me on the story. He always called me Shano. He said, well, Shano, how long do you think we'll ride this train before it runs off the tracks? He figured it'd be a month, two, maybe three, right? And when I first got there, Eddie who brought me in. 
and he had called me multiple times, and I kept saying, I'd let, that was right after Steamboat and I, my shoulder was messed up. I had surgery on my shoulder, and they did that dose hombre thing. And I was so, I was already turned off by the politics, but that was just like, you couldn't wait two, three weeks for me to get back and do this right. You know, and I left and started using my education, I thought. Eddie called me some months later and said, I want to bring you to Philadelphia. I said, thanks, no thanks. Like, alcoholic stand out of a bar, right? And uh, he kept calling, and every time he'd sweeten the offer, and I said, no, 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 thanks, but no, I, I loved it. He had to give him a break in the business. And he finally called and he said, how about if we uh, give you the lead heel spot? Well, as it, back then, you remember, white meat baby faces didn't become heels, right? So I, I thought, well, you know, I always want to learn all the aspects of the business. And so he got me hooked with that. And that was when I came in and met Todd for the first time. And uh, uh, Eddie, we were in a... Now, what year is this? This is 93. All right, I must have my years wrong then, but okay. Yeah, so we were, uh, we used to do the booking meetings. It was an upstairs room. Like when you went over across the, the, the dock, the, the loading dock, there was an upstairs area over there. We had a booking meeting. Are you reading it? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. And uh, funny, I don't remember going up there again after these meetings, but uh, we, Doug Gilbert was in there. A bunch were sitting around the table, and uh, it might, I think it was the second or third time. And the meeting starts, Todd comes in, talks to Eddie for a second, they, get up and they walk out of the room. They were gone for seemed like 30, 40, maybe 45 minutes. Todd comes walking back in without Eddie, said, uh, Eddie left, he's no longer with us. Paul will be the booker now. And Paul had been there with us a little Dude, I am right, you were right there yeah. when that shit was yeah. happening? Yes. Now, is there any validity? Because I've never known what happened when they went out that door. Oh, I know exactly what the reason he well, was. Well, do tell, because I- Because Eddie hit on Todd's wife. I, I just recently heard that, is that? Yeah, Eddie hit on Todd's wife. Wow. I'm pretty sure it was the night Eddie was doing. They were, they shot this thing down in Philly where Todd rented like this carriage and Eddie had like, you know, that imperial fucking yeah, yeah. margarine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah. But I'm pretty sure it was that night when they were filming all that that Eddie was fucking, Eddie hit on Todd's wife and then he just decided, dude. How was that kayfabe all those years? Because, I mean, because people were good. Wow. Dude, I didn't know it for a while. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? You were talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, but I didn't even know it for a while. Yeah, well, so he, he Paul took over and uh, laid the show out that night. And Eddie had given me the, the gimmick, uh, the fabulous one, you know, from that Memphis stuff. Well, <clears throat> for me as a, as a wrestler, what is a fabulous one? You know, it's, it's, you know, sort of play arrogant or mean or whatever. But when Paul gave me the, the franchise gimmick, Boom. Finally, I saw Bulbs. a laser beam that I could, I knew exactly what he was looking for. Was the Sandman character the same for you? Okay, here we go. I'm in that, uh, the, remember I'm telling you about the wrestling school that I started? My uh, Peaches is there, my youngest son's there, my daughter's there. <laughs> this story is so great. Oh, I don't know, I think all my stories are, it's just... It's just timing, dude. It's yeah. just, I just, I've had good timing in my life. Right place, right time. Joel walks in, he goes, I have your name. It's the Sandman and she's Peaches. I loved it. As soon as he said Sandman, I'm like, yeah, I'm digging this name. Cool. Yeah. And, and I say, why? He goes, because I just saw it on a billboard for a box spring and mattress company out on 95. <laughs> it was Mr. Sandman box spring and mattress. He sees me five minutes later next thing you know, Mr. Sandman. Oh. Just a, just a little side note to that, like how incidental things can be. 
Mick Foley, of course, Man Mankind, Dude Love. Before that, he was Cactus Jack, right? That was his first gimmick. There's a, a, a semi-infamous stories in wrestling circles about Mick Foley not being late to a show in Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is true. Uh, where the story gets hung up is which one of us decided to be late. Uh, he throws the heat on me, and I, I can't say I didn't think of it, but I, I think it was him. But, but we were getting there, you know, young punks at that point. We're thinking, well, we're better than these other guys. Why are we on first? And then they're not understanding how a show is set up at all. Right. And so we get to Clarksburg, West Virginia, a mile or two from the building. There's a bowling alley bar restaurant type place called Cactus Jack's. Now, I've never asked him, I've never had a chance to ask him, uh, is that where that Cactus Jack name comes? The truth of consequences, New Mexico. Uh, but I, I remember stopping there at that place and, and said, now Sandman, I find out, comes from a billboard. <laughs> Yo, but so did so Cactus get his name right to either side right there? That, oh, wow, that's pretty strange. It's such a strange name, Cactus Jack. Right. I can't imagine. I've never seen it before that. Um, and it might have hit him two weeks later or something right, like that, right. too. You know what I mean? Now, like with the Sandman, like, because the Sandman character is so iconic in the ECW, I consider it one of the pillars of the ECW. Now, with that, like, like I said, with me for the franchise, the character like came into focus almost immediately, and it, it grew after that, of course. But like at, at that initial step, that first baby step, I could see this this jackass. Uh, was the Sandman the same? <laughs> no, dude. I was still like, I thought I'm thinking I'm the Sandman, but uh, but I'm not the beers, the beers, beer drinking, yeah. cigarette smoking, gates. No, nowhere near that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just get the new gimmick, and I think Paul tried me with um, Tammy came out with me sometime. I was just a Chris, or just doing some yeah. shit with the Rebel or whatever. You want to talk about timing? I get a fucking call. So it's it's Sunday night. It's probably like five o'clock in the afternoon. Todd's calls me. Says Paul Heyman wants you at the studio. Oh, I just happen to live like eight miles from the studio. I'm like Paul wants me at the studio. Boom! Right, right out the fucking door. Swear to God. Paul's standing outside talking to somebody on the phone, and um, and I'm just I'm just standing there waiting. He goes, I got this great idea. Cause he knew I knew I, I knew my shit about politics and I knew my world affairs just like you do. And like some guys just don't care, but it's important to us. Yeah. But I knew there was this kid called Michael Fay. And he was in Singapore and he got caught spray painting these cars and his uh, and his punishment with like the four other kids were like these seven or eight lashes with this with this stick that'll that'll cut you open each yeah, each yeah. time it hits you. It's because the stick wrapped with some vines, dude. Over there, they do shit a little bit different than here. You know, I mean, they stone yeah. people to death still in the middle of towns, dude. It, it, it happens. So I'm like, all right, I love the idea. I'm like, what are we gonna use for a stick? He goes. There's a tree next to us, a freaking cherry tree next to us. He reaches up, rips the fucking branch off the cherry tree, pulls the twigs off, and he goes, go find some black tape and wrap it around it. We're going to use that. That's how I ended up getting the Singapore game. So first game. Yes, but then I had known. So that's the branch, and I'm like, oh my, this thing looks like the shits, but then I remembered somehow seeing like Tojo Yamamoto have a cane in the ring one time in like the 70s or whatever yeah, the yeah. fuck it was and I said and I said I'm going to find that and that's what I want to bring a ring with me. See, it just reinforces what I always say. Nothing we do is original, it's all recycled. 
Right, everything comes to you. You say Yamamoto in the 70s, and now here comes in a per perfect timing, like you said, with this, that thing. I remember that vividly. I think that was a big deal. The president was talking yeah, about Yeah, it was a else. big deal. You know, and uh, cause an American kid, right, in, in, uh, in uh, Singapore. So uh, now, from that, like, how long, like, we're going to talk about your entrance, so uh, we'll get, sort of jump back to sure. stuff here. But like with the, the rest of the entrances in professional wrestling are such a incongruous part of wrestling, right? I mean, you can't imagine wrestling without a WrestleMania or anything without these elaborate, elaborate entrances. When I was a kid, Bruno San Martino here, he comes walking to the curtain, walks in the ring, and Bobby Duncan walks in the ring. But then after that, in those early, late 80s, early 90s, we started seeing these entrances just ramp up more and more. But they were all still sort of like, Vestiges of the old entrances. Uh, your entrance, like I can't remember that early period, like when you were doing it, but that that entrance has become so iconic. Every fan that's ever seen it can't take. Like I was talking about things you can't take your eyes off of, right? And your entrance was so drew, drew, drew you in, you know. Again, and it was so because you're out there with the fans. They're just having a party going crazy. And I'm having just as much fun as they are, yeah, too, sure, I think. Sure. You know what I mean? I th and I think that's conveyed across my face. Did that, was that a, a conscious thought to create that entrance, or did it just sort of like mold and morph into that? Okay, here we go. Timing. I think I'm with, I think I'm with Missy Hyatt at uh, the, at the Elks Lodge. That, was that the one with the strip club next to it? I uh, lost Battalion Hall. Okay. Yes. Yep. So they're playing my music. And me and Missy are over at are, are over in the strip club. Somebody comes running over to find us or whatever. But I'm but as soon as I leave that strip club and I and I stop hearing their music and I still hear my entrance and I hear the whole fucking crowd singing it, you know what I'm saying? Sure. That's when it started to get it to me with, with a little bit, you know what I mean? Why well, being such a Harry? You know what I mean? If they're gonna have this much fun right now and I'm not even out there. You know what I mean? I think I'll get a bigger pop fucking later, you know what I mean? And then that turned into this, all the beers and everything like that. But but again, it was just, it was, it was dumb luck. Yeah, but it goes, all these things all lead back to something that you were told from somebody earlier in the business. I remember Bill Watts always saying, at Thanksgiving dinner, nobody wants just a big pile of turkey. So you can get all this and all night long, and that's it, or like today, all the fat flips and throw out the kicks to the head. Uh, but that's a big pile of turkey. You know, the fans also want to see some of this, some of the flying, some tag team. Also, a fa somebody coming out that they love, standing out here, dumping beers down their throat, play, partying with them, having fun. And that was the thing that always got I me. Mean, I thought, this is, like, my initial thought was, okay, this will get older after a while. Like, he'll have to start getting the ring sooner. And you, it kept going longer and longer, and the fans are going crazier and crazier. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> so lucky. He's got magic in a can there. It's uh, incredible. Literally in a can. Yeah, yeah. Ever any problems with the entrance? I, I know more recently. Uh, I like to nostalgically think of the past as being a lot better. Was there ever a time that while you were out there in the audience, you poured beer down a 18-year-old kid's neck? Uh, not to know, if you look young, and I've, I've actually asked kids for fucking ID, you know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. no, I've never had a problem or ever heard of a problem. Yeah. Like that. But you know, when you look back to those ECW days, uh, like for, I wasn't there the night that it happened, but when Mick and Terry Funk had the, the flaming uh, branding iron, right? And the guy gets burned at rings, I, can, I mean, in today's world, could you imagine <laughs> so you, you sitting there and getting burned 
and not suing the hell out of everything, everything pencil blocks. And you care you how many videos there would be of it with like people right. right there on top of it, like six inches fucking away from it. Yeah. I remember, dude, and I. Tell me how that story went. There was the Brandon Iron, was Cactus on the bottom, Funk's on the top trying to jab him. And you know, what the fuck, what happened? I, as I recall, when he was branding him, it was actually burning him. And so he knocked it off, and when he knocked it, when Mick knocked it off, that there was a towel wrapped around in the table. Well, there was a towel wrapped around. Yes. I remember the way it went through the, the towel in the air, and, and the way I was uh, it, it just sort of wafted down on this guy. And, and I think, they, if, I, if I'm remembering the story correctly, I think they gave him like some t-shirts and tickets and stuff. I was happy with that. It's like, right? <laughs> oh yeah, nowadays, <laughs> uh, it, it wouldn't be like Paul would have been paying the, paying the fucking uh, the lawsuit anyway. Right, right. Now, curious, ever a time when you were doing that entrance, you know, because me, with, with Freddie and my characters, I was doing everything I could to try to stay away from that crowd, right? Was there ever a time out there that there was some jackass fan that pushed you or? Yeah, yeah, couple, um, yeah, one dude, me and Cactus, we were at uh, the Davy Arena, but um, uh, we were at the Davy Arena and uh, we were around like, you know, the bars that the clowns jump up on and stay away from the bulls. We were up on there and a guy grabbed us both one time, but, but I don't know, it's like, a, yeah, like you say, I'm a baby face. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? And, it, and Atlas Security was the oh, best dude. of the business. Oh, God. There's a, a great story, of, I'll tell you off camera, about uh, the Elks Lodge. Uh, that one night somebody threw, I think it was a quarter, and hit me during a promo. And I, I know sold it, but kept wiping blood off my face. Get back, and Atlas said, we hey, got the guy. You know, so we had a little discussion. I won't, we'll talk about that off camera, but... Uh, <laughs> So now, like, with, like, the, to me, the, in my brain, that first thing that really started getting Sandman over was the 10 canes on Tommy Dreamer. Oh, and yeah. it got Tommy over huge. Yeah, we both, both of us literally put us Tell both me, on the map, dude. Where'd that come from? Whose idea was it? Uh, I, dude, it might have been Nancy's. Yeah. You know what I mean? It might have been Nancy said she was she was great during it. You know what I oh, mean? Yeah. She was so good. I learned so much from her. It, it was ridiculous. Now, in my brain, do I have it right that that you you were still selling the blind gimmick, right? When no, that was that. afterwards. That was after. Okay, so yeah. I thought that night you pulled them off and caned them. No, there was all the cane in first, and then he ends up blinding me, and then I rip him off at the next show, and then, oh, and then I. I gave him some more, but it wasn't like the last thing. Right. Now, this past Monday, we, we had done a, uh, for 80s Wrestling, uh, uh, com, we had done a uh, round table with Simon Diamond, Mikey Whipwreck, uh, Jerry Lynn, Too Cold, and me. And this, this story came up about the blinding, and Simon was talking about how you had sold that blind. You were wrapped up all over, like every time you go out or whatever. Yeah, well, I didn't have, one, I didn't have to go out much. I mean, one, it was, there's, not everybody in the world has a camera, has a fucking uh, a computer in their pocket, you know what right. I mean? So it was a lot easier to keep fade then, you know what I mean? I'm not from a big town anyway, right. you know what I mean? It's right. only three weeks, oh, three weeks. Yeah. A lot of people in the town um, uh, couldn't even care less or, or knew who I would have been anyway, right. but still I stayed hidden, you know, for a while because of what, that's just how I was taught. Right, right. But that, that's the kind of stuff, you know, we, we hear today so much talk about kayfabe, 
you know, the, the, the blinding, blurring of the line, right? You know, back in our day, you and I would have never been in a car together or been seen together someplace. Uh, couldn't be. And, uh, you know, and, and you hear, the thing that drives me crazy, I don't understand. I know Vince gets it, so I know he knows it's wrong. You and I are doing an angle leading up to WrestleMania, right? You're caning me, and I'm taking my chain out and hitting you and slashing your tires and all, put, you know, doing every, all the skullduggery. Now, the WrestleMania experience, here's Shane Douglas and Hagel. Hey, here we are having a drink before WrestleMania. Why do they do that? I mean, it just blows it, right? I mean, it does nothing to the fan other than blow it to me. I don't know, dude. It's, dude, do they all just really just... Dude, I believe this shit. I mean, all the way up to like 14 years old, dude, I fucking believe this shit. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, wrestling's not fake. I get ready to fight with somebody in seventh grade or eighth grade. Yeah. They say wrestling's fake, dude. You know what I'm saying? But I don't know. I don't know. To your point, it's just it's just a totally different business now. And well, we were kids. We, you know, again, it shows the change of the world, right? When we were kids on where we had that backyard show, a friend of mine's uh, dad owned the bar, and they live right next to it. Well, we would go down on Sundays and clean the bar for his dad, and we, you know, we dump a little beer in a cup and drink it. Oh, we've been all grown up, you know. But we also had a, my friend Bill Peterson had a uh, Super 8 camera. And we would do promos a super behind a pool table, no sound, right? We had like uh, one of our friends, uh, Steamboat, uh, uh, Steve, Steam Engine Steve, uh, big, big, heavy guy, great guy. Uh, we had a board with ketchup on it, and they come out, hit him with the board. He goes down behind the pool table, comes up with the blood on, right? Now there's no sound. Of this. I'd love to see that footage today. Uh, but <laughs> How old are you here? We're like 13, 14 years old. Oh, that's great. Right the time of our lives, right? We got this bar to ourselves and shooting stuff and having fun. Uh, but uh, now back to the blinding angle. Like, was that Paul's idea or Nancy's idea? Because I, I remember thinking, you know, again, where I came from in the business, and I think this is where like, I had like, a, lot, a lot of problems with you in the beginning was uh, that I, mine was that ultra conservative orthodox of wrestling, right? The arm bars and the mm -hmm. headlocks and all that kind of stuff. And wrestling was ready to, make, to take a shit change at that point uh, into, you know, broadening out all the ladders, tables, and chairs. Oh my. Amen. And uh, so like, when I saw the blinding, I'm thinking, the fans aren't going to buy this. And to my astonishment, they bought it completely. All right. So, I'm not, I, let's say, I, I, me saying 90 means nothing percent, but I'm, I'm like <laughs> 60. All right. Let's say between 50 and 90. Just, just throw some numbers out there. What the hell? That it was Paul's idea. But, uh, but my idea was, I, uh, yeah, I, I liked the blinding thing or whatever. And, but I wanted to do it like a Tommy Rich would have done it. Like, Tommy, you know, he would, with that white hair, he would bleed all over you, would go through the people and shit like that. I wanted to do that and goes, Nancy, no, 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 we are not doing it that way. If we want to believe it, we're going to have to do it this way. And then I'm pretty sure she came up with the idea um, to carry me out through the people. Yeah. So I'm bleeding and I, and I hated it, but it turned out that I think that that's what yeah. sold the whole fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy those little tiny details. And, and, you know, obviously having been married to Kevin Sullivan at that point, literally grew up in the business for Nancy. 
that she was around all these people thinking they knew how important those little things were. Oh, dude, it is, dude. Uh, every single match is a thousand little things, and they're not all just you, 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 you wrestlers. There's also a referee out there, too, that has to do his fucking job. Because if he does it, then if he fucks up that three count, what did you just work so hard for? That's right. Again, back to Ricky Steamboat. You know, it's something you heard before. Ricky Steamboat used to always say, it's the small things that makes the big things count. And like you just said, perfectly better than I can say it. A wrestling match is a thousand little things thrown together, right? And it is. Every one of them are important. So now, the night, so it was three weeks that you guys did that. I, in my head, I ever, I, 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 again, it's so long, but I had had it, there was like multiple TV tapings that, that you were blinded on. Well, I mean, well, well he probably was probably pushing, Paul, he was probably pushing it every week on TV for uh, like three straight weeks. And gotcha. four, oh, that, oh my God, I even got sick of saying, he played me, Kane Dreamer, so many times for every week. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I couldn't even watch it anymore. Because yeah, I've seen it so many times. But that opening was what uh, I, I think made began to build that legend of ECW. Right? What, that opening, opening with the yeah, letters? The Kings, and yeah, all that. yeah, I agree too. Totally. such a part of it. So, like, in full disclosure, in the early years of ECW, there was a this between Hack and I, right? And, and it, you know, it was, I think, each of us not knowing each other, and, and me being a, a big-headed, I'm one of those wrestler guys, right? And me being just an asshole. And then I started seeing you, like, again, watching you, and, like, one day the light bulb went on. I would watch that entrance again. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. You know, to me, I always had to work hard at everything it seemed. I'm looking, I'm, I've seen you walking out there having fun with the fan. I'm like, Jesus Christ, he's more over than anybody in the building. And, uh, but watching it, and I'm not watching you, I'm watching the fans and their faces. They are having the fucking time of their life. Love that. They're having the fucking time of their life. And then it clicked to me. He's exactly like them, and every one of them see themselves in him. It's, they, they're living vicariously through hacking the ring. Dude, I am the guy that wants to go to a fucking bar, play in a game of pool, lose money to you, and then beat you up with a stick after I lost. <laughs> everybody gets that person. Yeah, everybody knows it that It took guy. me a while to get that person, too, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, yes. Everybody, I mean, how many, how many drunks have been portrayed like that on in every different, like, cop show or whatever, dude? You know what I mean? That's what people know. Yeah. That's what they can identify with. And I'm thinking, there's all these super muscle-bound motherfuckers, dude. And I'm like, how does this, how does this fucking 19, 20-year-old kid that just started drinking himself identify with this guy with all the muscles? Too? Yeah. I remember, I don't know when I actually... That all clicked in my head, but when that did, yeah, then fucking, then there's like another level to, I think, to the same thing. Yeah, and it, it, and it was just another piece of that puzzle that is ECW. When we did the round table this past Monday, we were all talking about, you know, how anytime you put any of us in a room, the chemistry. I had been in wrestling for 11 years before ECW. I had never seen that kind of family feel, that fraternity feel, you know, and, and never seen it after. I hear everybody talk about we're going to be the next ECW, and you walk in the dressing room, and it, 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 it I, I didn't realize at that time how special it was. No, 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 I don't think any of us did. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, there was multiple veterans that would come in there, dudes that I didn't even know, and they're like, damn, this fucking locker room's pretty fucking cold. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because we're all, we like being in, we were in, the, in the arena. 
It was like, God, there's a couple of like stars over here in this room. There's the one big star over there. Dude, it's, we were all in just one big room, dude. It was all for one and one for all. And nobody had ever seen a company like that. No, no. The, the, the things that, the, the, the apex things to that to me are, uh, I remember Franny and I coming back from one of our matches to forget against who, come to the curtain and everybody sitting at the monitor jumped up and get a standing ovation. I was being nice, right? Uh, but then you'd watch the next match and watching you and come in here. And that just became infectious. Like, a, like a, I don't yeah, want to use cancer, but it was infectious, right? It just it bled to the dressing room. Then there's also the, the event in Jim Thorpe where uh, I can remember I was walking towards the entrance and uh, Too Cold, or not Too Cold, uh, uh, Dancing with Wolves, Dudley had come to the curtain. He had just wrestled New Jack and he had this like real scared look on his face, so what's wrong? And he said, somebody's called New Jack the N-Word. Oh shit, <laughs> he took off the, and the dresser remembered that. Do you remember this? <laughs> I kind of remember it. I don't remember the details. Was Terry Gordy there that night? Do you remember? Oh, uh, he might have been. <laughs> uh, I just remember going out there, and there was probably 100, 150 people in the room, but anybody that was moving was getting dropped. Like, people were just whacking people. I grabbed the guy in the front chin lock, and of course, Shane goes right to his <laughs> And Perry sat around with that little wall around the ring. Yes, I know, I know that wall. So Perry's standing up on that wall and he, he's stomping the guy, the guy here. And he's, I mean, as hard as he could stomp the guy, I turn around, you're going to kill the guy. I let him go. Somebody else cold cocks the guy. <laughs> like, Jesus God. We're going to all get a Jim Thorpe, we're on the top of this mound, dude. It was the scariest <laughs> locker room you have ever been in your life. It was like this six foot wide, rickety, fucking hundred year old, like, trail train. It looked like a, 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 a train trestle, fucking. Yeah. It, it, it was fucking. And, dude, it's a straight down job, yeah. dude. Yeah. That thing, and we had a lot of weight out on that oh, thing sure. a couple nights, dude. I didn't like sitting down on that Well, party. what he's talking about is you, we were dressing on, like, the back patio area of the bar. And when you looked over the railing, it was literally straight down to a river that looked about that wide. It so must have been a mile down. Yeah, dude. That building slid. We weren't stopping until we got to the river. <laughs> uh, there was another time I heard, you'll love this story about Tracy Smothers. Ah, uh, uh, Tracy. There was an armory. In love you, dude. Simon Down and River. There was a new armory in New Jersey somewhere. And you know, I was on last, and uh, I hear this, like, melee going out and I hear noise outside so I get on the bench and I look up over top of the locker and the wind is up high and I look out and it looks like a scene from Walking Dead. Every like the bodies people like staggering around holding their heads and stuff. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And there's Tracy Smothers right out in, like in the middle of the yard and he's going He's airboxing. <laughs> no, that's totally Tracy. Yeah. So now Tommy Dreamer in Alaska tells me the, the, the rap of the story. Like, you know, you told me about Todd. And, you know, you hear all these stories. Now you get the, the rest of the story. Uh, Tommy was out there trying to get all the ECW guys back in the building because he knew the cops. I'm sure, because that's Tommy. Right. And a cop comes up with a, with a dog. And he said, get in the building. He's, I'm try he's trying to negotiate with the cop. I'm trying to get the guys in. And he, he said, out of no place, he hears a voice in his ear. You get the cop, I got the dog. It's Tracy. <laughs> you take the cop, I'll get the dog. Oh my god, he's a badass. Oh, it was so this, crazy. 
You people know, you got to understand something about Tracy. Some people would ask me who the toughest guy in the locker room was. At a point, it was Tracy Smothers. Yeah. That dude was bare neckled. Uh, he used to live on a farm, right? And on, and on the 4th of July, everybody that had the big farms, they would, get, they would all get together and have this big party. And everybody who had the toughest uh, hand on the farm, they would bare knuckle box and the guys and the guys would be paying money. Well, Tracy's more like a 14 year old kid, the toughest kid on his farm, bare buckle, bare buckle boxing, grown fucking men while the rich guys are throwing $100 in the ring betting on you, dude. That dude was a tough mother, and straight fucking, if he gets mad, it's oh, yeah. like blackout. Yeah, the sea red, right? Yeah. Go red, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, but what I, a great guy, dude. Oh my God, I love that dude so much. Yeah, he's, he's, he's uh, uh, gone way too soon, right? I love, love that dude. Rest in peace, Tracy Smothers. You will always be remembered. We'll be right back with more of this discussion between Sandman and Shane Douglas coming up right here on Franchised. Hey there, everybody. This is Stephen P. New from the House of Kayfabe. And I just want to tell you that uh, in addition to being a co-host on House of Kayfabe, I am, in fact, a lawyer licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia and other states by special permission. My law office is at newtaylorlaw.com. We handle all types of personal injury matters, discrimination, wrongful death cases, and do certain cases outside of the state of West Virginia and the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, just based upon uh, selectivity and what that case may be. I have cases right now in probably nine to 10 different states. We get admitted what's called pro hoc vice by special permission to practice in other states. So if you or a loved one have need of a lawyer, give us a shout at 304-250-6017 or at www.newtaylorlaw.com. Let us see if we can help you on the law firm side of the house. And also, for those of you who may not know, I am also co-owner of a sports agency that's called New Legacy Sports. And we just recently opened a professional wrestling wing of that. We have done great work on behalf of such super superstars as Midnight Express and Jim Cornette, Shane Douglas, Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan, Joey Mercury, Kelly Klein, Sonny, the Rock and Roll Express and the Heat Seekers, among others. Uh, that wing of our sports agency just keeps growing. And right now we have uh, training for individuals who are trying to make it in the National Football League, Canadian Football League, or the XFL when The Rock gets it going. So if you need to get in touch with me, just give me a call at the office, 304-250-6017. Thank you guys so much. Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Now, this week, we are not going to talk about the franchise, but we are going to talk about someone near and dear to not only Shane, but to all of our hearts. I'm talking about the Sandman, baby. Yeah, a man who is arguably on the ECW Mount Rushmore. I mean, I mean. 
he was on the cover of their CD. You remember, remember, right? That picture of him like wrapped in barbed wire smoking a cigarette. <laughs> it was awesome. See, he was the poster boy for God's sake. And we, the fans, loved him. And not just because he had the greatest entrance in wrestling history, <laughs> but because he was one of us. The beer drinking, chain smoking, every man. He, he came through the audience because he looked like he should be sitting in the audience. Ring gear? Fuck that. He looked like 90% of the people you see in Walmart. He was the ECW equivalent of Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he was perfect for that crowd and for that time. It was magic. <laughs> so here's what I want you to do, all right? See, I've said it before, I'll say it again because it's that damn important. Live in the moment. Sandman lived in the moment. You all remember him. So you go out, make memories, remember the things you do. Cause hey, everybody gets a Sandman moment, right? And everybody gets their chance to make magic. So until next time, this has been Rich Quick. It's another moment in Shane Douglas history. So now back to ECW with, with your character. Go, go that. Then we have the infamous ten canes on Tommy, right? And like clearly, you weren't working those shots. You couldn't. Right? No, dude. I, we were all, we were both all in, and we both know it. That yeah, yeah dude. The, the first one blo bloodied him. Yeah. And I knew how to bloody him because there. I would say, I said, why don't we have a fucking cane here? It's probably have a Christmas card. But yeah. There's these red strings that are on the side of the cane, dude. If you hit him with the red string, if you hit him with the red string, fucking it will bleed. It will make you bleed. But I remember sitting up in the Eagles Nest and watching. Which one? I always get them backwards. Which one had uh, Ron with the camera? Was that the Eagles or Crows? Uh, no, the Eagles was the one that was closer to the left of the entrance. Okay, so then the Crows Nest, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'd watch from behind the camera up there because nobody would be looking up there. And I remember watching this, and as they proceeded on, and you could the, the crowd, you, you, me watching was feeling the pain. And, oh, they were too. You know, and Tommy, I remember Tommy had asked me early on, he said, uh, you know, trying to pick the veteran's brain, like, how do you get over as a baby face? And that's when he's still wearing those suspenders and everything. <laughs> he came back <laughs> and his shiny pants. That's fucking hilarious, yeah. He, he came back that night and I said, remember you asked me that question? I said, what you just did out there is how you get over. I said, that's nice. And, and he was you over after did. that, right? I mean, oh, dude, was, both of us, both our careers just went boom, 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 boom. Yeah, staying together, and then and then we went away for we went away for a little while. I went to did something. He did some great shit with Raven, freaking yeah. But that to both of us, we know that that was the night that our that our careers really yeah, fucking yeah, started. Took hold, and and then like after again, like that from that point forward, I'm watching this entrance and the matches that you're having, and as different as they were, right? And you're watching and thinking the fans are watching. He's had this great entrance, and they had a party for 15 minutes. And now they're into the match, uh, and, and it, it clicked in my head right back to what Bill said. Right, this is this is the pumpkin pie. You know, this is they're having, they're loving it. And uh, and then Dusty used to always say, right, it's all about putting asses in seats, baby. And that put asses in seats. Right? That, that, that is basically bottom line. It uh, now what? Because all of us that were in ECW, there was a. 
I knew I never wanted to leave. I was through. I, I got to spend the rest of my life there. I loved it. Uh, uh, what lured you away? What? Uh, what uh, you? Here's I mean, the deal. You were like this with ECW. Yeah. Oh fuck yeah, dude. And I just actually told uh, DDP, which will come into the story in a little bit. At his birthday party, maybe six months before this, I was like, dude, I'm ECW as long as the company's alive. And this we were just bullshit, man, at his fucking birthday. Me and him got along real good, yeah. like real old, old son um, for some reason. And, uh, and so uh, I had a deal with Paul Heyman. I don't even have a con I don't even have a fucking written contract. Yeah, I didn't even <laughs> Dude, all I wanted to be was his highest paid player in his game. And I think my denim number was probably around three G's or whatever. But this was that was a weekly pay. I thought the pay the weekly pay was probably like one fifty or whatever. But whatever, I found out that he paid Sabu one thousand dollars more than me for a pay-per-view that me and him did. And I don't. And Paulie's so stupid that he's. That why wouldn't he think we would talk about it? You, you know what I mean? But I mean, Paulie's super brilliant. But you know, sometimes you're just not thinking. I mean, you guys super brilliant. But um, but as soon as I found out, I called him on my way home. I remember I, I was in like Columbus, Ohio, driving to the Cincinnati airport, and I just told him I quit. The next morning, I called. Uh, I called Raven, who got me DDP's number. I didn't get to talk to DDP, but. Just so happens I'm living in Salt Lake. Timey's fucking everything, right. dude. You did another one of Hank's timing stories. So I'm living in Salt Lake City because I started a concrete construction company out there. And um, it just so happens all of them are going to Casper, Wyoming that night. And all of them living in Atlanta back in those days, every single one of them had to fly through the Salt Lake City airport. So I'm going to catch the fucking flight to fucking. To uh, to go to fly to Casper, Wyoming to talk to DDP that night. I come there. I remember I'm walking down the store, stairs. Oh darn! Here's Rick Rude, who I know really good because he was at ECW, and I know and DDP standing there. Okay. Well, right, I'm like, yeah, you guys hugged them both, I, and and I had no problem talking in front of Rick. And at first, DDP was like, dude, you want to be saying this? I'm like, no, this dude's cool with me. I was like, I want a job. He goes, you told me you were never leaving ECW. I said, think it changed. I told him the thing. He goes, I said, here's my number. Give me a call tomorrow. Within two days, I had a $250,000 deal and a $10,000 signing bonus. Nice. Literally, that, that's, that's how lucky I was. Yeah. I quit fucking, I quit Sunday night. Fucking, they're going to Monday night fucking night job. I don't even have to get on the plane. Wow. <laughs> Dude, just yeah. timing is so everything. It's, it's incredible in my life. Do you I've been so lucky. And do you sometimes think of looking back at that, you know, not to get philosophical, but, you know, we hear this thing about free will, you know, versus, uh, you know, preconceived. Uh, do you think that was a, like a script? Your life was just following a script. Sometimes, like those, and you look back at those, like I thought what you're saying. Oh, that's heavy, dude. Like, you know, you're in the plane, you're in the United States of America, right? Pretty big place. And on the particular night you quit, those guys are right there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just think I've been, I've been blessed with time, and I've been blessed with a lot of shit. But fucking, I just, I yeah. just, some people were blessed with fucking talent. I don't know. I was blessed with time. Now, like you're leaving, my leaving to WWF the way I was lured away was Jim uh, Ross, who I've known for pretty much my since I had my break in the business with UWF, kept saying, uh, you know, call me quite often, and, and you know, 
not every call, but he would periodically say, hey, remember, you know, Shane, sometimes opportunity only knocks once. And they kept calling and kept calling. It took several times to leave, but it was almost immediately after I did it. It took me like six months to finally come to there to, to sign. And even then, after I signed it, it just didn't feel right. Like, it's just, no, okay, okay, let's go make the best of it. And, uh, but as soon as I got there, I knew it was the wrong place. Uh, how, how soon after you got to WCW did, did you realize, like, this wasn't, like, your place? I don't, to, to me, I always knew that the, the shelf life was only going to be so long. And I figured it was, no, it was, I wouldn't make the whole contract. Right. You know what I'm saying? So that's just how I'm going into my head, you know what I mean? I'm like, there's so many fucking big stars there and shit like that. There's no way they're giving me a chance. Right. But next thing you know, me and Bam were fucking leading off every fucking Monday Night Nitro for like nine weeks in a row because Vince is talking to fucking Cactus or Stone Cold. You know how he used to open up the first 20 minutes? Yes. So Nash was smart as soon as he got the book, he goes, you guys are opening up. Yeah, and, and we did really good then, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I knew there was, oh, there, there was always going to be a shelf right there. And there was always rumors about that. That company was like haywire back oh. then. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, Dusty was the only person that I could talk It was hard to, I mean, I talked to Bischoff when we went to lunch and signed the deal, fucking, uh, and we didn't even finish the fucking lunch. He, he had to go right away. Uh, I met that dude for like maybe 30 minutes and I, I don't even know if I talked to him again the rest of the time I was at the whole next year I was at the company. Wow. Now when you got there, did they have any grasp of the Sandman character of, of what? Well, Nash did because I was sitting, they signed me, they gave me my fucking, uh, they gave me that $10,000 signing bonus. It was on like uh, September like 9th. They didn't use me until March 6th. They cut a couple videos. They were going to use me as Raven's smart friend with Canyon. They, they, I hated it, but I didn't care. I'm going to pay you. I mean, sure. But I was liking to stay at home, too. The day Kevin Nash got that book, he got the book on Sunday. Kevin, uh, um, J.J. Dillon calls me and says, Hi, they want you in Minnesota tomorrow. Nice. And now, obviously, in a, a larger arenas and stuff like that, the entrance, uh, how, like, how did they, did they address that? They wanted me to, they would just cut, they would just cut it off. If I was going longer, they just start doing the guys' music. Yeah. And, and Kevin had started doing that with Vince, too, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. They just cut me, I'm walking around the top of the walls, they just start doing guys' shit. Yeah. I ain't hacking the room. I, I remember. And then he told me, do not go short tonight. Yeah. I think I might have been the only guy ever that they was if Kevin got he was like did he literally tell the ref, remember Kevin said do not go short tonight. Really? Dude, yeah, I, I didn't want to be out there that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Give me my entrance, let me do a couple things and right. say, I don't need to be out there that moment. The first night I came in there after leaving uh WW or uh, after leaving ECW, um, the second time. I came to Jackson. I wasn't working, but I had taken my ex-wife on a cruise, a two-week cruise, because I knew I was going to be tied up for a couple of years, so I'm busy. And uh, Bischoff had called me. Well, it had come from Dusty. Dusty had called, had been on uh, Mike Today's radio show, and Mike called me and said, hey, Dusty was on the show last night talking, you know, really positive about you. So I called Dusty to thank him, and he said, you might have to bring your name up in a meeting, baby. And I said, no, you know, whatever. And, he, uh, Please. Yeah. And uh, Bischoff called. Uh, it was maybe a week from the start of this episode to me being signed and going. And uh, 
But I remember Eric saying vividly, I, I want to be the one that brings Shane Douglas into Ric Flair to television. So Jacksonville, I, we stayed in Florida for, I think we got back tomorrow, uh, Saturday. We stayed in Florida for a couple days, went to Disney World and everything. And then I went to the Jacksonville on my dime. I wanted to show, see all the guys, let them know how eager I am to be at work, and I'm, I'm ready. Nice. And I walked in, and you and Mikey were, and Peaches were in the backstage area. And we started talking, and there's other people coming by. There was like a lot of just hustle bustle and hellos and things, and everybody went dead quiet. And I knew Rick Flair, I, I felt him walk in. I didn't see him, I felt him. And he, I, I, before I said, I said, Rick, how you doing, bud? And I turned around, and there he was standing right behind me. And you know, Rick, the, the, the ever present uh, politician, right? I knew he probably wanted to tell me this, but instead he saw all the eyeballs watching. Everybody was quiet and looking at us. He shook my hand, and I wouldn't let it go. He went to walk away and I wouldn't let go. And I said, uh, Rick, and again, knowing that all the eyes were watching, I said, Rick, uh, uh, I think you and I should probably talk, right? And uh, he looked around and he said, yeah, yeah, give me some time to settle in. He said, give me 15 minutes to settle in. So I went down to catering to get coffee and I intentionally stayed down for like 45 minutes, came up and that started that whole thing. But that night, if I'm not mistaken, you had some match that had a table involved. And when you went through the table, the table was upside, or, I mean, it was right, right side of standing up, like open, and went through, and the legs all came straight through the table. And how they didn't stab you, I, I can't, I have no idea. Lucky. Again, like, all four of those legs were straight up through. Oh, dude, I, there's so many near misses. I mean, just, I mean, think of the new Jack freaking jumping off the fucking buildings, dude, and fucking. Johnny Bracco, Rod, Rod, memory, fuck, who he put Scorpio through the two tables off the top of the cage or whatever, dude. Yeah. Dude, you, you were, there was a lot of trust, you had to have a lot of trust with the person that you're working with to do a lot of the stuff that we did, you know right, what I mean? The, and Tommy on the swinging oh, that I made. I actually, wow. I actually made that scaffold. Uh, Dreamer was petrified. Oh, I, I didn't realize he was petrified ice. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the Ryan took right his the four four table. Boom, 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 and then they laid it on the house. How you know? God, thank God it didn't happen, but that nobody got killed in that arena. A bunch of broken necks, but oh, yeah. fucking like me, Taz, fucking did you? Uh, Gary, I, I, I never Gary, but I never knew it at the time. Years later, when I was getting off the oxycontin, my body started having these seizures, and. Took five days when I figured out, and the, guy, the doctor walked in and he said, uh, "When did you break your neck?" I said, "I never broken my neck." What's that? And he that? said, uh, "He said, well, there's only three things that like, all the muscle tissue in my neck and back had died." And he said, "There's only three things that caused that: infection, surgery, or a broken neck." I said, "Well, it must have been an infection. I never had surgery, never broke my neck." He said, "An infection that large would have killed you if it hadn't been treated." So they took me down and focused solely on my neck and came back, and sure enough, C2 busted. And I always tell people, in wrestling, your neck and back are always sore. I mean, every day of the week. It's, it's, yeah, dude, your neck's broken, man. You're literally wrestling the next week. I had a broken C4 and a half, and I was, and I, was, and I didn't stop wrestling. I never knew until I got hurt in that junkyard match with WCW. I go to the hospital, they did the CAT scan, they say, yeah, we think your neck's broken. I said, listen, my neck's been hurt worse than this before. They did the MRI, they're like, yeah, he did this probably about four or five years ago. And wrestling, I got yeah. cracked by the chiropractor the next morning, Sunday morning. Wow. Dude. Remember the night that Gary, the day that Gary's neck got broken, right? 
in the dressing room that night, he's back because he, he took that bump, and I remember him hitting it was like a thud, it wasn't a bump. And I look over at him, and he's rolling, holding his neck. Looks to me like he's selling. But in the dressing room that night, all night long, he's going, I got a kink in my neck, and he's jerking his neck all over the place, right? We are idiots. So on Monday, we are such idiots. Monday morning, Todd calls me because me and Todd used to always try to rib each other back then. We were always ribbing each other, right? And he called me and said, you hear about Gary? I said, what do you He's over at the University of Penn right now. He's getting going to the surgery. You broke his neck. I went, I ain't buying it, Todd. I said, he was cracking his neck all night and Saturday at the building. Fuck off, you know? So that week, I said, all week I'm not buying I go to the show that week and, and he's got the halo and the screws <laughs> rashly in his head. Have no screws in yeah. his head. Fuck him. Yeah, that was like that. No one opened him. <laughs> yeah, that's all it to me. But. Oh, dude, but then when he came back and you did this to him, that fucking building would have glued when you did that, dude. That, uh, you know, I, that was some Brady. I, I get out. Oh. In hindsight, if I knew that was going to be the reaction, I'm not sure I would have done it because... Dude, it was fucking... It was... I thought it was great. Franny was laying face down, selling. She had no idea what's going on. When I grabbed the halo, I remember hearing this collective gasp in the building. And we had a time. One, two, three, four, and on five, release them. And he went, and because he was locked into that thing, he looked like Frankenstein's monster falling, right? Dude, I see the whole spot oh, in my head, crazy. dude. And I'm then, from there I go to try to gauge the crowd, and the crowd was like this, and then fans were coming out. And I saw fans jump in camera left, uh, stage right. And I took off opposite to get, uh, my thing is to get Franny. Yeah, get Franny, get the fuck out of here. So I take off, and I land, and I turn around to get Franny, and I see a, a cop come around the post, Helmet, face mask, shoulder pads, and, and Paul had always said, Did Tracy you want to fight him too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Paul used to tell me and Franny, if you ever, if you ever see cops at Riot here, you know you're in imminent danger. Well, we're in that building all day. It's not much bigger than this, right? Literally. You're there all day and don't see any cops. I'm like, oh, no bullshit. But when I saw him come around that post, my heart went, because I thought somebody had a gun to my head or something. Well, they pushed, he came behind me and started pushing me. I grabbed Franny. She still doesn't know what's going on. And I can't get her because another one came around the same way. And he's pulling me and pushing me. And I'm dragging Franny and I'm bent over like this. And as they moved the railing, Tommy had pulled both curtains back. Yeah, your head's down. You have no control what's right. going on. You're just taking me with And people were punching and kicking at me. And I'm getting the shit beat out of me. So I pushed my head up to stop getting hit. And I see Tommy with both curtains. And the look on Tommy's face was like of absolute terror and and the, the audience pushed like a wave right through the dressing room following us and uh, Damien Farron, rest of the soul, uh, was out on the loading dock, had the car started and in drive but it had locked the doors so I get to the door and like expecting to get stabbed any second and it's locked and I went over the door, over the door, over the door and throw Franny and we he peels out we're driving away and Funk popped into my head. Uh, he, remember he got cut in San Antonio, the guy gutted him? And uh, he said, You'll, you won't know till after, Shano, if you've been stabbed. So I'm sorry. Right, you're not going to feel it. And I'm afraid first slice. My bleed is yeah, right. sticking out of me, right? And then we had to be stuck into the building in the trunks of cars. But that is the <laughs> yeah, That's great, too. Oh, the shit that this company has done. Oh, yes. Get stuck in the building in cars. That's All those awesome. things. I mean, just look at these two idiots sitting here, right? You have the blinding angle. 
had the canning angle. You had that angle with, with your son and Raven and funk, funk out of the box. Funk out of the box and you know the halo incident. Yeah, okay. And then add everybody else's stuff in the God, dude, it's like the stories we oh, did. Oh my god, we need like fifty cameras and we need all of us in a big party, dude. Right. right. Well, it wouldn't be something to have have some place where you know you, you could go and see all that stuff. You know, and have, hear all these stories being told by the people that were there to do them. You know, yeah, man, it, uh, crazy. Um, so now, uh, did you ever go back to ECW after you left? Oh, all right. So I get the call. It's it's. I, I remember signing the contract on like September ninth, the one year. So the next year, I guess this is two thousand, but you know. I, what the fuck do I know? Um, <laughs> I've been off so much on years today. It's like ridiculous. Um, okay, so yeah, so uh, I get a call from uh, JJ Dillon again. They said, "Hack, we, we've decided to release you." I'm like, well, "Thanks, JJ." Picked up the fucking phone, and I, and I don't even know if it was a flip phone. I might even been on a house phone at this point. So I might have been in my. I think I was in my bedroom. Um, I called up Todd Gordon, I said, I just got fired, I need a job. He goes, all right, I'll take care of it. Hung up, called me back five minutes later, he goes, all right, you're making 3,000 or 3,500 a week with Paulie, and you're gonna, and we're gonna start you on the Halloween show, October 31st, so I had, so I had to keep that quiet for another like three weeks, you know what I mean? Because I didn't want, want and nobody, me, fucking, do you know what's going on? No, no. Me? Todd Gordon, fucking Pauline, fucking Dreamer, I'm pretty sure we're probably the only people that know because we couldn't trust something like that getting out or you wouldn't have got that fucking pop when I did come out, you know what I mean? And where was that night? That was at the arena. That was at the arena. Yeah. And the, uh, I remember the, the, the... I stayed in the van, I stayed in my Sandman van the whole time. I remember my kids and my wife were there with me. I didn't even get into the arena. Nobody, nobody in the arena even knew that I was there until like 60 seconds before I'm supposed to go up on that perch thing. Yeah, I remember standing up there. Dude, I love popping the boys. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, was, yeah. that was my candido in me. Yeah, it popped us. Uh, let's talk about the guys that have have gone, right? Oh, jeez. Because it is, in, in ECW, in life there's always a yin and yang, right? There was that special, Magic about ECW, and then the yang of that was half, all, half or better are gone, you know, and gone way too soon. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, the super significant ones. Yeah, I mean, those guys that have had cups of coffee and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But yes, a lot of this, dude, I can't believe I'm still here. Honestly, yeah. When we were doing the uh, hardcore homecoming in 2005, I had uh, asked. Uh, 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 my partner then to do a video and I'm thinking it's gonna be like a maybe 90 second video just to like pay homage to these guys right and he had made the uh, video and we get ready we had, I think it was like in segment four and I had never seen it I, I didn't want to see it. I wanted to see it that night in that building so we go to the ring and, and, and you know start playing the video the video ended up playing like six minutes and it, it was just friend after friend after friend after friend that you've had a million incredible fun experiences with, right? And I don't think there was a dry eye in the place, mine included, just sitting there and watching it, but uh, for some reason, probably because of the triple threat, Bam Bam and, and, and Chris, when, when Chris died, that was like the punch gut, or gut punch to me. You know, he, 
I was working on Hardcore Homecoming, and he was obviously going to be an integral part of it. And Tommy called me about midnight. I'm sitting on my desk working, and I take the call, and he's crying. Well, I'd never heard Tommy cry. And when his grandfather died, I didn't hear him cry. And I'm thinking, did he get fired? What the hell's going on? And he said, uh, can, you, like, can you tell me, is, is Chris okay? And I, well, Chris had just broken his leg real bad in TNA. So yeah, and then they put him on the plane and he got the blood clot. Yeah, so I, I didn't hear any of that. I didn't even know he had gotten home, but I said, oh, well, he broke his leg pretty bad. He had surgery, but he's going to be fine. And he said, no, not that. I heard he died. No, what? I said, hold on, I'll call you right back. And I doubt Tammy. She answers the phone. Perfectly normal. Hello? I was like, it's a rip. I said, Tammy, it's Shane. Is Chris okay? And she said, oh, um, uh, who is it? I said, it's Shane. She goes, uh, oh, okay. Uh, well, tonight, uh, who is it again? I said, Tammy, it's Shane. And this kept going on back and forth. She kept asking me who this is. I said, it's Shane Douglas, Tammy. Is Chris okay? She goes, oh, it's not Tammy. It's her sister. I forget her name, but it sounds on the phone exactly like her. And she said, at 7.30 tonight, 7.35 tonight, Chris was eating a bowl of soup. He looked up, collapsed his soup, and died 35 minutes later. And I couldn't catch my breath. <laughs> and my wife came out of the bedroom. She was in sleep, and she thought I was having a heart attack. I'm going, oh, <laughs> I, I couldn't breathe. And then I had to call Dusty and uh, Dixie. And oh, man. Yeah. Wow. Just like, like, I get goosebumps even talking about it because I remember walking up to his casket and seeing him laying there, and it was like a fucking Twilight Zone episode. You know, it was just absolutely crazy. I mean, the people that you lost there, you were close to with in ECW. <laughs> Uh, I did, like to rock a rock, Johnny Grunge, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That was just the start of, dude, I don't know, there was, there was so many of them. Big Dick, I was close with him. It's just hard to remember all of them in my head, you sure. know what I mean? So you have to understand at one point, there was like this five year period where like 40 of us fucking literally, it was like once a month, one of us was like going, it was like, it was like crazy shit, you know? At that time, did you, like me, I, in my head, it was sort of like there's a curse on wrestling. This is what happens to wrestlers. Like, when's my turn? Did you go through that? Well, yes, I was absolutely thoroughly convinced that I wasn't going to make 50 years old. But I, I even thought that when I was a young kid, I always thought I was going to die in a plane accident. I never thought I'd live past 50. So I'm not going to plane with you. <laughs> so maybe I don't know. Maybe that's why I live life so hard. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, that's just that's just how I felt when I grew up. Yeah, it's. Uh, in hindsight, you know, obviously we've had pretty lengthy careers since ECW. In hindsight, looking back, I always talk to people like our mutual friend uh, about why is ECW still talked about? You know, is it, uh, was it something in the water at that time? Is it something, you know, what, what there's obviously a lot of uh, parameters to what's your take on that? We fucking broke the business, dude. We changed the fucking industry in 96, dude. ECW's on the fucking back of Japanese magazines, dude. You wouldn't have saw that shit fucking right. before, you know what I mean? Right. For like a fucking little indie company in fucking Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. No way, dude. We, cha we changed the industry at, at, at a point. Honestly, and that's, that's just exactly why I think it is, it is the way it is. Yeah. In hindsight, I, I couldn't put it any better in looking back at it. Uh, to me, I think it's a, it, it, at least simplifying it, is like a sort of a two-piece formula. The, the part of it was we changed the industry, right? We created magic there. Uh, but also since then, the industry, in my estimation, has gone so far off the rails, you know, that... Uh, well, that's why, I, dude, I, I just don't watch. Yeah. I just, I just, 
It's, it's why I watch the same match over and over and over and over again. And yeah. these dudes are taking like 50 big bumps up a match, dude. Yeah. What are they doing to their bodies? Oh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Jesus Christ, Kevin Sullivan. Be like, are you kidding me, kid? Yeah. He get one bump a match. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, you know, the fact that you and I are still out there doing it and having fun, and uh, you know, and what we did to our bodies, I can't imagine. We didn't do anything these kids were doing. Uh, no, no, dude, we were taking that. Do that. That's like imagine, like in some of their matches. Imagine having 20, 20 mile an hour car crashes in a eight minute time. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. That's that's exactly what the, their their shit is doing, dude. You take you flip somebody off the, uh, uh, like a super a superplex or something like that, dude. They consider that like a 30, 35 mile an hour car crash. Yeah. You know, just I'm just trying to imagine that, dude. And I'll put a table in there. And <laughs> <laughs> I always like the table because I thought it helped me break my fall a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The, the table raises on the bump, but I mean, again, all the the accumulation of that on your body. I remember, right. you know, the old timers telling me, you know, you have a a, a bump tank, and there you, have, you, you had so many in your tank. I had so many in my tank. And when that tank yeah, is empty, they're in the gas station. Well, my bed's empty for a long <laughs> fucking time, dude. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, you probably spent yours up in the first two years of ECW. Uh huh. I said you probably spent yours out in the first two years of ECW. Well, yeah, once we got going. Yeah, dude, because I'm I'm going out there. You gotta understand, like how long, like an ECW card would, like we invented, like four hour shows, four and a half hour shows, dude. You go out, you, you know how much they've seen, and that just made me want to have to up it more when I'm working with Sabu and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Well, I always said, you know, in, in ECW, that was another thing that was magic about it. Other places I had worked previous to that. As a young punk, you got to have a good, you know, good match. Not yeah, too good. Yeah, bingo. You get back to the dressing room, what would they say? No, I want to see Mikey Woodbreaker get fired over. Him and Billy Kidman opened up a paper good, they tore the house down, and they never used Mikey again. Because if you do that <laughs> in the first match, I got to work harder later, right? Because <laughs> you ever hear anybody in ECW say, what the fuck, hack? Why'd you go out and do all that shit? Now I got to work harder. Never heard anything like that. It was just that, again, no, maybe dude, we were too stupid. Right? Out <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was just. Uh, uh, we were hungry. Yes. Yeah. We were fucking hungry, dude. It. Uh, what? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. You know, what do you think when you hear ECW chance today? I mean, twenty plus years after the company's been around, oh, it's fucking hilarious. It's, it's, it's the best. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is that our crowd. Um, was a, a very, very unique crowd, as in no other crowd did that shit in the United States. Yeah, overseas, I've been at rugby games, soccer games back in the day, and they, they're chanting and they're singing. They're not yelling, you fucked up. Right. That crowd invented being a professional fan. Yeah. Yeah. And they were they were just as part of they felt like they were just as a part of the show as we were. Six men on the bench, I was called. Yeah. Ah, yeah they were they were like there, that. man. They really were. And you know, you try to convey to young kids in the business. I remember several times getting in the arena and either being sick or tired or just had surgery or and you just didn't really feel like it and you struggled to get dressed. You get to that curtain, you hear that deep purple hit, right? And boom, let's go. Yeah, it was like I was, was like being plugged into a 220 outlet, and that crowd was the reason. Ah, dude, live for that entrance. If you can, if you can bottle that, right? Ah, dude, 
I'd be dead. I would have drank the whole fucking bottle in one day. I'd be done. <laughs> Incredible. I great, great experience at ECW. And, and, and this stuff, this is like a scratch on the tip of Literally. the tip, right? I mean, there's like a zillion other better stories. Every night there are, there were. 500 things that went on that night. By the next morning, you'd be here. Hey, here what Sam did last night. You find out what that Funker did, and you know, it was like, what? I didn't, you know, I, it was every single night. We've we've got to get to a point where we catalog that stuff, you know, where 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 that stuff all comes out, so that when we're dead and gone, uh, that, that that can live on and fans can see. Because like I, my take now is with all this social media, and you know, we're too old farts and and, and wrapping our brain around this stuff. But you know, we we didn't. The world didn't have this technology when we were kids, uh, but now you, know, you, you look at it and you, I, I think this computer thing might catch on, right? So uh, there's clearly an, an inertia out there. Like I was telling our mutual friend, um, the the fact that the business is going where it's going. Like you see, Raw after WrestleMania dropped four percent from a week before. There was always 15, 20 percent bump after WrestleMania. So you see that, and it's, it's clearly a, a, a bad numbers. Yeah, bad right now. Yes, yes. There's bad as NBA numbers right yeah, now. Yeah. Holy yes. shit! And, I didn't realize that. And, and, and trending the same way. If it weren't for all these billion-dollar deals, you built Vince. You got to give him credit as a businessman. He built this incredible business, right? For for 30, 35, 40 years. Now the business is empty, right? The, the, the numbers are shocking, and I always bore people with these numbers. But at one point, back when the three companies, ECW, WWF, WCW were in business, there was an average annual weekly viewership of 50 to 50, 48 to 52 million people. And you know, it fluctuated up and down, but you look down and you're getting, if you add them all together like back then, you get somewhere around four or five million. So that means we've lost 97, 5% of our Yeah, but, it, but don't you lose some of them to other platforms yes. that aren't like in like Hammond and... Yeah, like oh, so the numbers like, across the board are down, but right. they're not down 97, 97%. Gotcha. You know, it's uh, like the, the Super Bowl this year was down, I think it was worse since like, what, 96 or 2006 or something. But yeah. it still, it still did, I think like 80%. Yeah, 80, yeah I was going to say, I think yeah, it did like less than 100 million. And usually it does run 111, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I think it was down, I, I read it again off the top of my head, I might be wrong with the number, it was down like 18% from the previous year. So 18%, you know, 18, 20%. Oh yeah, 20% of 100 million would get you down to 80. 110 says at 90, Bingo. you know what I mean? Bingo, man. I'm right about the same place. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, clearly the industry is trending in the wrong wrong direction. I think part it's of the- ebbs and flows also, dude. Are we at, how far, if, if we're at an ebb right now, we're, we're it, are, like how far into it are we, do you think? Well, it's been, it's been going on for 20 years. Well, now so it's a teach. It always fires back up a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it like five years ago. Oh, I don't know in my head. You know me and them. Yeah, and like years. the last time I dug into the, the ratings, I think it was, which was like two years ago. You know, at that point, it was for twenty years, uh, the WWE, which is the industry for the most part of the last twenty years, every subsequent year the ratings were lower. Now, what sliver of that was going to other platforms or whatever? It remains to be seen, but again, over 20 years, seeing now a 95 plus percent drop in, in the viewership is not a good positive thing, I think. You throw the fucking moron. But, oh my god, I had no idea it was that big. Yeah, yeah. And, 
you know, when the fans look back, especially the chunk of those that have left, that 40, 48 million or so that have left, but when they look back, what's the last thing they remember is being good? ECW. Oh, that's a good point, too. So, if you're like all these guys, I don't know who they are, I want to say like an AEW, a TNA, a, a Vince, and how many of the shows he has, can you see every one of them be streamed somewhere else besides having yes. just watching on TV? Yes. And on multiple platforms. Oh, sure. Yeah. All that's, over the planet. Yeah, that's it. That's ubiquitous now, sure. The, and if anyone are doing that, like I know uh, NWA, I shouldn't say I know. My understanding is the NWA is is on YouTube, but then that would be streamed, right? So if you were in Singapore, you could get on there and see NWA through YouTube. Um, the technology stuff for like, again, old farts like us buying those. The first time I went to a virtual signing, I'm sitting there, there's people there from Australia and Japan and Saudi Arabia and Europe. And I know, I love asking everybody. I just say, you tell me who, where you're from. Let me know where the fuck you're from. And, and, you know, I might have been there. You're sitting in this chair right here and you know, bumfuck uh, West Virginia, right? And and you're talking to people in real time, right now, around the planet. Like, the guys in the we were, it's insane. And it's only gonna get worse, because yeah. now they're putting them blimps all over, they're putting these fucking blimps all over fucking Africa, all over everywhere, and the blimp is gonna stay up there, and that's gonna give everybody their Wi-Fi, yeah, yeah, so yeah. they don't have to put any hard wire wires in or fucking anything, dude. It's all gonna be on a fucking, a fucking blimp now. Well, imagine this, you know, technology, they say it takes half as much time each subsequent time for technology to double. So a thousand years, 500. Yeah, but we're the moving at light speed. Yeah, Every yeah. couple years, our, 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 our storage power gets so much bigger. Now, I, my great-grandmother was born in the 1880s. Uh, she went literally from gas, you know, lamps and things to electricity, to cars. To the industrial space. revolution. Yeah. And, and space flight, yeah. right? I'm thinking, man, nobody's ever going to see a bigger stretch than that. Now you look at our life, right? We go from this to where, like, literally Star Trek stuff to me. And right? then me sitting in this what chair. What about our kids? Our kids too. Too. They're 3D printing fucking kidneys right. now and shit, dude. There'll be there'll be utility belts that they wear if you have if you need dialysis. You'll have like a Batman utility belt, dude. If you're young right now, you got a chance to be a long with like a hundred and fifty. They say the first hundred and fifty year old kid is on this planet right now. No kidding. That's how fast we're moving at light speed, freaking. Uh, with uh, technology and 3D printing shit. Yeah. You just can't do the heart yet because you well, you haven't figured out making it to be. Well, the artificial intelligence. It, uh, it, but there's a scary aspect to that too. I'm like, sure. I mean, you know, it's you, gonna we grew up watching like Terminator, right? Where the, the machines took over the world. You think, okay, that's crazy. And then now you start hearing the stuff about AI and how, how it's being sort of seamlessly put in. And, you know, it, it, at what point will the machines go, okay, we don't need these bastards around anymore. Right, it can't take long, I mean, fuck. You know, that guy, I think it's a perfect place. Scotty, beam us up. <laughs> See you next time. Thank you. Peace. Well, there you have it, folks. A complete interview with the Sandman from Shane Douglas. And uh, I hope you learned some really cool stuff on that or at least had a good time listening to this conversation. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to join the franchisee group on Facebook. We are out there. We are everywhere. And we want you to be connected. We've got more franchised on the roads coming up with some more guests like... Bob Orton, Mr. Hughes, Madman Pondo, and many others. 
Get ready for some more great stuff from Franchise with Shane Douglas or get your ass franchised. You know what, baby? Mommy doesn't like Shane Douglas. So after your tag match, I want you to kill him and everyone in sight. Shane Douglas, you've been nervous, man, if you cross that line. This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. This is not just a podcast. House of Cafe with Brian Resner and Stephen New.
This is a tribe of devoted superfans that have crashed through the barricades, torn down barriers, and broken through the fourth wall. This is a creative think tank full of people who have given way too much of their lives to professional wrestling to not be getting a paycheck. This is a secret society of elite fans from all over the globe. And guess what? It isn't a secret anymore. House of Kayfabe featuring Jim Cornette's lawyer Stephen P. New is available now on all major podcast platforms. Just click subscribe to join the Kayfabe stream and get access to unbelievable interviews, in-depth discussions, hilarious segments, and exclusive content. This is the fan-driven podcast you have been looking for. House of Kayfabe with Brian Resner and Stephen New. At the law office of Stephen New, we take a team approach to your case. Our staff and paralegals are excellent and will assist you through every step of your case. We employ world-class experts to make sure that your case is developed to its maximum value. When you seek legal counsel, choose Stephen New and his team. They'll work together to achieve the best results for your case and support you every step of the way. Our clients, why we do what we do, the law office of Stephen New.